And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're gonna tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The race is on. And quick as a flash, Formula One's pre-season testing is in the history books, with Max Verstappen putting car number one in position one on the timing screens on the final day of running in Bahrain. So has Red Bull's late side pod upgrade given it the edge, or are Ferrari or Mercedes the real favourites? I'm Ed Straw, and joining me for our verdict on F1 winter testing are Scott Mitchell and Gary Anderson. Well, just to give a brief overview of the top of the timesheets, Verstappen's time of 1 minute 31.720 seconds was set on the C5 compound late in the day under the floodlights here in Bahrain. That put him comfortably fastest, although Haas driver Mick Schumacher did put in a sneaky lap during their extra two hours of running at the end of the day to go second. Next up was Fernando Alonso for Alpine, just under a second off the pace and also on C4s with George Russell within a tenth of him in fourth and on the C5s. Scott, we'll start off with you simply because you were watching trackside at turn 10 when everyone was doing the quick times, including Verstappen. So Verstappen's time on the timesheets was pretty good. How did it look in person? It, it looked really, really good trackside. Um, obviously, I saw that Max came through on the on the softest tyres, so you were all kind of hoping that you were going to see something proper um, and not just some kind of, you know, meaningless late correlation run or something where he just comes through a few times at low speed um and i'd been out there for a little while when max hit the track in that form um i'd been watching lando norris sebastian vettel and nicholas latifi doing quite long runs uh, and they were all on um c2 or c3 tires the harder the medium and the hards so when Verstappen came through, it was always going to be a step up from what I saw before, but it, it was just, it was night and day different because obviously it was exaggerated by presumably fuel loads as well, but mainly the tyre compound and the freshness of the tyre. But then then he came through again 
and he came through on different, I think I saw him on four different compounds in the 70 odd minutes that I was stood trackside. And there were, there were, a, there were a few moments here and there. There was one little correction that he needed to do. Uh, it wasn't clear whether he was correcting a slide from the rear or turning out of the corner again because he turned in a bit too early or it had gripped a bit more than he thought. And there was one or two times he came through and the amount of wheel spin was audible as he got on the power. But 95% of the time, that car was on rails. Didn't matter what compound. Obviously, it was most impressive on the softs or the softest tyre, rather. But um, it, the Red Bull just left that seriously, seriously good impression. And when I when that run was coming to an end, or the, the, when the session was coming to an end, I was thinking, you know, the Ferrari does look good. It looks almost on the Red Bulls. It's the, it's the only thing coming through that looked, you know, very close to, to the Red Bull. The Mercedes was okay, but it... it and it, and it got there, it got close in the end, but it just it wasn't impressive. The, the Rebel just had the wow factor, especially on the softs, but it was really impressive on all the compounds. I had a look trackside earlier on when they weren't going so quickly, and the, the Red Bull, although they were not doing a huge amount of laps at the time, I was watching at turn 11, the quicker uphill left-hander at the end of that back straight, but it just looked very predictable and consistent. The Ferrari probably looked a little bit better at that time, but different programs, etc., that's the micro perspective, you might say, of, of the Red Bull pace at the end. But Gary, you can perhaps give us the, the big picture, the macro perspective of, of the Red Bull pace. New side pods on the car. They do look genuinely quick, don't they? Yeah, they do look genuinely quick. And I mean, I looking a little bit deeper than just at the, the lap time they achieved um, is the ease at which they achieved it with. You know, obviously the car was fresh this morning with uh, Perez going out in it. And lap one, so there's purple sectors coming up. Now, that's not really a big surprise because, you know, you'd expect that against the guys that had run. But it was consistently quick. Um, it looked in control. It looked easy to, to drive or easier to drive. You know, no matter what the fuel load is or, or, or what the, the run pattern is or what tires you've got on it, it's always about the driver taking the maximum. So you should always be that you know, I don't know, two or three percent of throttle away from getting wheel spin. That's what you have to you have to push everything to the limit all the time for the set of circumstances that you're driving within. And I think they had a bigger window of of uh understanding of the car, of how the car was reacting and what the feeling was from the car than most others. You know, if you take that two days ago we saw the Mercedes arriving with uh, with its new side pod package. And, and it didn't have that, you know, it didn't have that confidence. Neither of the drivers could go out there and, and sort of nail it. Uh, obviously, they did decent lap times in the end, but it took a lot of building up to it. It wasn't something that came sort of naturally to it. Whereas, again, with the Ferrari, in all the sessions from pre-season testing, the six sessions we've had, um, the 12 sessions we've had, six in in, uh, in Barcelona and six in Bahrain, the Ferrari's always been in that ballpark. It's always been able to do a lap time no matter what the driver was or what the tire was or whatever so i think ferrari have got a car that's driver friendly they understand the car red bull have got a car that's driver friendly and probably a bit quicker mercedes have got a car that's not quite so driver friendly but i think they can drag a lap time out of it if they have to but it's going to be a a roller coaster ride on the way to achieving that lap time so yeah, it's a, it's a good mix going into the start of the seasons. We'll have to just wait and see how it unfolds in a week's time. 
Yeah, certainly uh, in some ways the, the usual suspects at the front, but it does look close. And of course, we don't have him on the podcast in person, but Mark Hughes as ever, he spent all day in a darkened room logging laps and working out the long run. So we asked him to record a little piece just explaining what he made of, of the long runs. And I have to say, he's done it in an admirable attempt to do a, a TV-style report, at least at the start as well. So you can enjoy that style as well as the excellent insight. So on the final day with its updated side pods, floor and front wing, the Red Bull emerged as the star car of window testing, which seems a little cruel for Ferrari, which had assumed that status right up until the moment this morning that Sergio Perez took the car out and headed the timesheets. Max Verstappen's turn in the car in the second half of the day just rubbed in that superiority. He lapped a full seven-tenths faster than Leclerc's Ferrari. Probably not quite comparing like with like as Max set that 131.7 very late in the day when the cooling conditions seized the track at its quickest. Leclerc's 32.4 was set around 15 minutes earlier. When you compare their long runs, such as they were, they each did a stint on the C3 tyre, and this too favoured the Red Bull, albeit only by a couple of tenths, but that comparison probably flatters the Ferrari because Leclerc did that run at the end of the day, catching the track at its quickest. So the transposed single lap and long run timings of the Red Bull and Ferrari make a direct comparison impossible, but it definitely favoured Red Bull. It was quicker in both comparisons. In terms of respect to fuel loads, historically Ferrari has run with a slightly lower base weight than Red Bull and Mercedes, so again suggesting Red Bull, Red Bull advantage is real. Mercedes, they're just not, in this moment, on this day, in a position to compete with either of those teams. It's, it's as simple as that. The, the porpoising is just too extreme to access all the downforce the car is capable of generating. It's there, but it's not usable. That's very much the message coming out of the team. George Russell was afterwards adamant that as things stand today, they are just not there. He's confident they will unlock the potential of the car to somehow tame its behaviour without losing the downforce. But whether that can be done in time for the opening race next week is far from certain. Of the others, uh, McLaren may be a match for speed with Mercedes, but it remained limited in its running because of the continued brake cooling issue. Uh, despite the reduced track time, every time Lando Norris took to the track, he was quick. His race stint simulations were quick. The car behaved very nicely, other than its brakes. And it, it does look a very good car, and it's... Hopefully the fix for the brakes is there um, in time for the meeting next next week. And after that, it's the six-team sort of amorphous blob behind that you really couldn't... The, 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 the run plans are significantly different between those six teams that trying to call which of them is... Any real order between them is, is near to impossible. They look very closely matched. Forget Valtteri Bottas's low fuel special at the end of the day, and that because that just wasn't in any way reflected by the Alphas' performance in the long runs. I think the quickest of that bunch might just be the Aston Martin, but it's difficult to separate it from the Alpine, the Alpha, and the Alpha Tauri on the basis of the last three days. And the Williams looks close to them, but maybe at the back. So that's that's how it was looking um, as, as, as we left the final day of testing. Well, Gary, broadly in agreement with uh, with you in terms of the the situation at the front he talked about the the rest of the pack as well we'll get on to them later on in this podcast but obviously what people will want to know with this if we want to talk about it as a top three for the moment we'll get on to other teams shortly people will say well Mercedes are just sandbagging etc it's the normal thing Mark talked about 
probably the car having the, the downforce but not being able to access it because of where they're trying to run the car to avoid the porpoising. So where would you see it? Do you think Mercedes were just playing games, as people will say, or do you think they've got genuine problems? It looked like they did. Um, genuine problems. That's a difficult one to say to what level those problems go. I don't think they're trying to run the car in the right window right now. Um, they seem to have gone around the uh, the porpoising problems by making the car stiffer. Making the car stiffer then leads to more brake locking. Uh, car doesn't ride the curbs very well. doesn't ride the bumps very well. Um, so there's two or three ways of solving that problem. Uh, the, the best one is to try and solve the porpoising, obviously, and try and keep the downforce you've got and, and solve the porpoising, which is what I think Red Bull have achieved. You know, looking at their car the latter part of today, I I would say they're running more rake in the car than most other cars. Um, through that turn four, you can see the, the side of the car quite highly loaded up, and it doesn't seem to be as near the ground as some of the other cars. Now, it's only a visual thing, but the car does ride the curbs quite well, so it's it's a compromise of of uh, car stiffness, uh, aerodynamic philosophy, uh, and how you abuse the curbs. And I think Red Bull have got the best package out of that. I think Mercedes have gone the wrong direction to achieve it. They've tried to keep the downforce levels that they can get out of the underfloor by just tightening the car up, running it stiff, running it low, keeping it in one little working window. And that's really, really tough to do. Uh, when the conditions are changing on you. And in Bahrain, it was changing. You know, you had sand on the track one minute, you had a lot of wind. You didn't know where you really were. So with those conditions, I don't think Mercedes have got a compliant enough car. Uh, whether that is because the, the downforce is quite peaky and Red Bull have got a bigger operating window or whether it's just because they're trying to run it in that peaky condition, I'm not quite sure. You know, I'm sure they'll drag their way through the data, try and understand where they were, uh, where they had the best sort of moments and I suppose or how they set the car up at that point in time and try and optimize that for next weekend so it'll be about how does who does the most homework between now and, and next Friday morning will be the with the team that sort of steps up uh, at the first race but the Red Bull to me at the moment looks like the the better faster all-round driver confidence package that's the big question with Mercedes isn't it whether it's just some floor tweaks here few little minor changes for next week and suddenly it's running in the window they want it, it's compliant, it's doing everything they want to. So there's definitely a big upside in the Mercedes if they can make it work, which isn't a foregone conclusion. Scott, Lewis Hamilton was certainly winning the trophy today for downplaying chances though, wasn't he? Yeah, he's, uh, well, to be fair, him and George Russell have been very consistent in their comments um, pretty much since Barcelona, but especially this week. But yeah, Lewis was definitely stronger with what he was saying. Um, at one point, he was asked if there was a similarity between what's happening at the moment and what happened a year ago when Mercedes had a difficult test in, in, in Bahrain and then obviously Lewis won the race a week later. Uh, that was quite a big turnaround. They they did a lot of work last year to um, get the car a bit more under control. It was a bit of a temporary fix at the time if I remember correctly they effect effectively just dialed a bit of understeer in, in into the car and uh, sort of artificially settled the rear down by by doing that it that way um but Lewis says that the challenges are a lot a lot bigger this year than 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 one year ago that as as you've said and, and and Mark was explaining in his dispatch the Mercedes do feel that there is a lot of pace to come 
in in this car, but it just doesn't feel like it's the way Lewis put it was. It's not a week's worth of unpacking the data and and putting stuff together to to unlock that. He feels it'll be a little bit longer. And the upshot of that is that Hamilton's playing down the chances of Mercedes being able to fight for the win in the opening race. Um, I suspect the team hasn't actually given up hope of that just yet. There probably is an element of Lewis playing it down a little bit more than necessary, but I, I would agree that at the moment it's a car that doesn't doesn't look like it is on the Rebels level, certainly, maybe not even the Ferrari's level. Um, things could change by by next week, but it's a car that is responding a bit better immediately on the softer compounds and taking a little while to get into it on the on the harder compounds so yeah we just have to we just have to see see what they can do but I have no issue believing that they're in a spot of bother I just don't think it's um as much bother as them you know they're not I don't think they're going to be in the lower reaches of the top 10 I can absolutely see them being in podium contention next weekend I just wouldn't peg them as favourites at the moment. Yeah, I think that's a fair comment. And obviously, this is not a normal season because the rules are completely different. We do have this porpoising problem, different car concept, ground effect cars. So there's a lot of things to learn and a lot of aspects they still need to understand what they're doing. Everybody's programme is a little bit different to what we've seen in previous years. And the whole competitive picture is a little bit sketchy. So yeah, there's plenty of chance for the needle to move over the next seven days. Mercedes will be thereabouts, whether they're absolutely there. Probably the work and the number crunching going on now will decide that. But Gary, you mentioned Ferrari. Watching that car on track, it always just looks very, very responsive. It's doing what it should do. It turns in nicely. It sticks through the corner. They can get on the power. There's no massively obvious vices in it. So I imagine Carlos Sainz and Charles Leclerc are enjoying being in it. So I guess the real question with them is they're in a good position, but have they got that last little edge of pace to take the fight to, to Red Bull? That that would be the big question. Do you think Ferrari could be a winning force from the off this year? Well, I think I think you've got to look deeper and, and sort of look at the last last year and the year before that and sort of say, well, what happened from testing to going racing? And I think you could say that Ferrari probably runs their car a little bit lighter than, than Red Bull and or Mercedes. Um, and whenever they go racing, they don't improve. They actually maybe, if anything, drop back a fraction. So I don't see why they would change that philosophy. You know, you need to have a whole different mindset. Normally, the philosophy within the team of the fuel loads you run and stuff stick with you. Uh, we know that the teams further back will try to go for a bit of a glory run because it's it's quite important for the sponsors. It's quite important for motivation, lots of stuff. But the teams at the front try and do the the most professional job possible to to get the data, to understand the car, and they know that when you make the car lower in fuel, you will go faster. Uh, and that's just, you know, that's just a, a calculation. So you can handle that. As long as the balance of the car stays, um, stays okay with lighter fuel, then you're, you're, you're looking pretty good. Sometimes it doesn't, though. Sometimes the car changes quite dramatically with lower fuel. And as you know, the, the softer tires normally are the tires that you put on when you've got lower fuel in the car, i.e., for qualifying. And that can lead to different sort of balance setup problems where the, the car understeers a bit more with softer tires. So, you know, the, the reality of it is, unless you actually do it, you don't know if you really got on top of it. So, at the minute, with what Ferrari are doing, I think they look consistently 
let it go a competitive package. The car, say the driver, with any tyre on it, always looked to do the job pretty well. Um, but when a push comes to shove on a Saturday afternoon for qualifying, you know, on a sniff of an oily rag as far as fuel is concerned, and getting the tyres working from the first corner to the last corner of a lap, there is no substitute for actually having done it before and trying to understand it. So I think we have to take Ferrari's performance with a with a sort of little bit of a question mark beside it. You know, when push comes to shove, can they actually do the same job? Because whenever it was in, in practice and testing, you know, they did a good job. They did a positive job, but the car looks pretty good, as you say. Either driver, either any tire, it was always good. But it's a different it's a different deal whenever you're really trying to wring the car's neck. And uh, if you haven't done that, you've, you've still got your question marks beside the potential performance. Yeah, I think the conclusion we can give for Ferrari is certainly good, maybe even very good, but not necessarily that last little bit. But I'm really interested to see how they, they do in Bahrain. They've got a lot of data, a lot of understanding. They seem to be in a in a good place. So certainly we're going to expect to see them very much near the front, if not absolutely at it. But Scott, we should say... One area that does look strong is the engine performance. Now, it's very difficult to judge that from the outside, but GPS data, that kind of thing, gives some indication that, that things are, are pretty strong. There's still endless data we can look through for uh, the, this test to, to get a clearer picture, but certainly they've they've not blown it engine-wise, have they? No, but it's, it's, it's just really difficult to get a read on on all the engine manufacturers, to, to be honest, because it it, it felt like we'd already reached the point of decent engine performance convergence in recent years with Re- Renault being the obvious outlier after uh, f- choosing not to upgrade their engine properly for, for 2021. But even they, with their massive overhaul for 2022, were reporting very positive things in terms of reliability and performance from their new power unit. Um, clearly, it's been a massive challenge for every power unit manufacturer to uh, adjust to the the new regulations for this year and get everything together in time ahead of the um, homologation dates. I, as as hard as it is to judge where the respective cars are at the moment, obviously it's it's impossible to separate car and engine as a, as a package in modern F one anyway. But as much as we're sort of trying to make our best estimate of where the teams are, I I have, I am happy to admit that I have no idea where they stack up on. On, on the engine side there was obviously so many positive noises coming out of ferrari and how much progress had been made there suggestions that honda were maybe on a little bit of a back foot trying to catch up to what they'd lost with the with the fuel change for this year and the down slightly reduced power of the combustion engine mercedes obviously colossal overhaul with what they're doing there completely different packaging changed more on their power unit than 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 ever before in the hybrid era so basically loads and loads of change and yet we still see cars on track doing very very similar lap times producing very very similar straight line speeds so i'm i'm really i it doesn't look like anyone's missed a trick that that that's all i can and sound it doesn't seem like there is a a huge amount of divergence in the the ultimate power of the power units yeah there's there's just sort of one thing i'd like to add there obviously there's there's sort of three different things that that add up to straight line speed one is the the power of the engine two is the efficiency of the car the drag levels of the car and the third one is the how the drs how effective drs is and 
obviously that you know until you get to a given race weekend and see what everybody's up to you don't really know but what i would say right at the minute is that there's there's still quite a bit of understanding to be had from the rear wing assemblies now if you look at the mercedes rear wing assembly it's a fairly it's a fairly horizontal rear wing you know the main plane and the trailing edge of the flap are relatively parallel to each other whereas you take a ferrari or quite a few other ones it's a much much more of a u-shape now with these wings with no end plates on them you get the more horizontal you have it uh, the spillage over the side of the wing is much greater than if you've got a U-shaped wing. So, in effect, when you look at a U-shaped section of a wing in the past, you'd say that's a lower downforce setup, which means lower drag. But with the with the assembly the way it is now, the parallel wing, um, like Mercedes were running, could actually be a lower downforce setup because you get more spillage over the side of the end plates. So there's a there's a fine line between that at the moment. I don't think anybody really sort of is on top of it. I mean, the teams probably are because obviously they've got all the data. But there's a whole new family of wings, of rear wing assemblies to be generated by the teams as to what is high downforce, what is low downforce. I would have said what I saw in Bahrain so far, there was a very, very big difference between what Mercedes were running and what Ferrari or Red Bull were running as far as the rear wing was concerned and how it would function and also then again when the rear wing opens the the uh, mercedes version will open to more of a horizontal or a parallel uh when the drs opens the 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 opening will be more parallel uh, across its width whereas with the u-shaped wing the opening isn't parallel it's bigger in the middle and, and smaller at the sides so you've got this sort of weird combination now of, of bits and pieces that can make up straight line speed and uh, as, as I say, until we see them all trying to achieve the same thing at a Grand Prix weekend, I don't think we'll really know what package is actually the best, what the, the maximum or the best DRS solution is relative to the best downforce level that the team's actually running in normal practice. And then we can probably relate that back to uh, to engine power. But it's it's not as black and white as it was in the past, for sure. And it's um, it will take a bit of a bit of deciphering before we really understand the best solution. Yeah, I think that's a great point. The rear wings we haven't really talked about a huge amount, but it's just another area that they're learning about with these rules being so different and things that were taken for granted. You know, the family of wings that each team had, they'd normally have a reasonable grasp of it. But for several years in a row, you'd have your kind of high, low and medium kind of rough levels and you could you could trim that. But we could see people being being caught out by that. But also the fact that just looking at the whole picture everything's so tight there's so many areas for teams to change not only are small differences in terms of say driver performance at a qualifying lap going to make a big difference in terms of positions but we're also going to see developments causing all sorts of swings it could be really interesting in the uh, in the in the early races well let's come back now scott uh, where we started with max verstappen and red bull being very quick are you happy now to declare red bull and max verstappen favourites certainly for the Bahrain Grand Prix championship season is very very difficult for all the reasons we've covered but do you think Red Bull are on top right now it does look that way yeah I think if it I I, I do think the Ferrari does look good and there are you know little hints here and there like the I don't feel like I certainly don't feel like they have the deficit to Red Bull that the the lap times, for example, today suggested. Um, 
think there was a suggestion that they might have been slightly down on engine power today, um, tweaking the setup as well and, and, and experimenting with with different things that just change the car characteristics. Um, nevertheless, I think uh, I think Rebel is slightly on top. If that is the case, they've done a fantastic job because obviously Ferrari has had more wind tunnel time, more CFD work that they've been permitted to do over the last, um, well, year, 15 months while these cars have been in, in, in development because of the way the aerodynamic testing restrictions are, are, are done now. The worst performing teams in the championship do get more of that. So Ferrari have had an advantage in, in that sense. They also weren't involved in a title challenge last year. So yeah, they were coming from a lower base but because the car rules changed so significantly I, I was expecting big things from Ferrari this year I, I really didn't ever feel like it was enough for Ferrari to just step into being third best ahead you know clearly ahead of McLaren really thought they should at least be properly challenging Rebel and Mercedes it looks like they've got their house in order quicker than Mercedes have I do think they're trailing behind Rebel slightly though so yeah I'm not going to make any bold predictions about the 2022 season but I'd be happy sort of saying at this stage that I would be surprised if Max Verstappen is not you know, on the front row and fighting for the win in Bahrain next weekend. Yeah, I think you're probably on safe grounds with that. And of course, we did see Gary Red Bull did stick an upgrade on today to the side pods. Not a revolution, but kind of what they had plus, if you see what I mean. They've, they've pushed a little bit more, slightly more aggressive undercut, a little bit more downwashed. It's just a little bit better, isn't it? Yeah, it's just a little bit better. It's actually, you know, it's, visually it's it's the same from the same family, I suppose you might call it. But it's just exploited it a little bit further. They've um, they've changed the the sort of, I suppose, where the the undercut in the front of the side pod runs out. It's a little bit further rearwards, so they can work that front part of the floor a little bit harder. Um, in doing that, they've got quite a complicated outer edge to the floor, so the the vortex generation is probably managed a little bit better um but they've also you know dropped the side pod instead of having a more or less a side in it and a top on it they've got a sort of three-dimensional side pod now so it, it brings more flow down a bit earlier around the car and the coke bottle area so yeah it's all it's all subtle changes but sometimes it's better to to have subtle changes around the same concept and just optimize it a little bit and actually sort of throwing away the the, the sheet of paper and starting again, um, which is what obviously Mercedes have done. So it's it's one of those sort of things where I think they're they're building on their knowledge and they're exploiting it a little bit further. And I think we'll see lots of changes during the season uh, in this in this sort of area because the the payback is it's going to be very little from any change that you see. You know, and you're talking now a massive change being if you get it right being a tenth of a second. So it's not as though there's big returns for your money spent. So you've got to just plan it well. And I think Red Bull have addressed the situation of the porpoising. They've addressed the situation of trying to make the floor sail aerodynamically as opposed to mechanically. Uh, mechanically leads to porpoising because you know the, the switch, the on-off switch with the floor touching the ground is massive. Aerodynamically, it's progressive. So... Uh, I think everything they've done is the right direction. Not too much of anything, but but quite a substantial change. And it is always encouraging when an upgrade goes on, isn't it, and works, because they stuck it on. They'd set the fastest time of the test so far with Sergio Perez not too long after bolting all of that on. So that is reassuring, isn't it, that your direction is correct? Because sometimes if there are problems 
when you take another step down that evolutionary pathway, you can get tripped up by a problem you didn't know was there. Given motivation to everybody that's tried to make that solution a little bit better. And when you put it on the car and it, and it goes better from lap one, that says, okay, hang on, we've got our head in the right direction here. We're making the right decisions. Now, how far, how much further can we take it with those same decisions? If you put it on the car like Mercedes did, and it, it sort of doesn't go better. Um, the thing is, with, with the Mercedes solution, you know, we don't know. They had a solution in Barcelona. They changed it and came here with a completely different sort of car as such. Um, and it's a different track, different set of circumstances, different bumps, different requirements, everything. But you've sort of started again, really. So I think other than getting mechanical stuff put to bed in Barcelona, uh, Mercedes have sort of committed themselves to a three-day uh, pre-season testing as far as car performance is concerned because, you know, they changed it over that two-week period. Um, or at least Red Bull came here with the car they had in Barcelona, more or less, ran it, got the baseline, got their head around it all, put the new bits on, stopwatch tells all. And, you know, that stopwatch said, yeah, this is pretty good. And uh, for uh, Mercedes, it said, hmm, I'm not a bit confused here. I'm not quite sure. Well, I think we're all agreed that it's effectively Red Bull, Ferrari, then Mercedes is our, our notional order for now. Before we get on to the rest of the pack, Scott, there's a team I want to take on its own, which is McLaren, who had a strong first test. They still look like they've got a quick car. We know it's working for the most part, as they expected, but they did have, in many ways, a bad test and ended up with the, the ninth fastest time of the 10 teams. So on paper, not great, and there were real problems. So what exactly has been going on with McLaren? Uh, well, they've obviously been beset by problems with brake cooling this week, uh, which has stopped them from doing as much running as they should have done. They were limited to short runs, uh, setup changes, upgrade evaluation work, that kind of thing on the first couple of days. And then through some modifications and also some bringing it, bringing out some new parts from, from Woking, they were able to then do a little bit more long running on the final day. But even then, the the time on track has been reduced. And it's ultimately left, Lando Norris described it during the lunch break as basically saying that they're not where, um, basically not where they need to be to feel in any way confident going into the first race, which is obviously... Pretty big statement to make. Um, it's not like they've had a, you know, an Alpine fire on the final day in Barcelona or Williams's fire again in the on the second day here, where the, a team has lost, you know, almost an entire day of running, and you can so easily quantify that. You know, Williams managed was it twelve laps, I think, with Latifi before that fire in on, on day two here. So. Williams lost one sixth of its running basically McLaren hasn't had that in such explicit terms but it has been a setback um, so I just think they're just not going to be quite as well sorted I, I think they do seem to have quite a good car and I think once that car runs reliably I think they, they can hopefully be confident that they're not going to be suffering from porpoising or anything like that and they can actually work on getting the maximum out of it but they are I think it's fair to say further away from understanding what the optimum setup is for that car, especially in Bahrain and all the other teams that they want to be racing with, you know, they're, they're looking forward, not backward. Uh, 
those teams have had a lot more time to to fettle the car, get it into a better window, understand a few things. And even the other teams in the midfield, I'll talk about Alpine very briefly. I was speaking to Alan Permain this evening, who said that they were able to run quite a few experiments today because they had a really, really productive test this week, a difficult day one. But they've got to the point now where he, they're pretty confident that they can basically turn the porpoising on and off. That was his way of describing it. They, they did quite a bit of work today. They think they've worked out sort of what the car reacts well to, what it doesn't react well to, what cures it, what causes it. And now they can basically make setup changes and they know whether or not that will that will, that will make that happen. Is McLaren in that position in race trim? What other unknowns is McLaren going to face next week because it hasn't been able to run that car in this heat, uh, in these conditions, on this bumpy track, as much as the other teams? That is what they don't know. It's the unknowns that you want to unearth during testing. And I think McLaren are just left with a few too many, uh, certainly more than they would have wanted to. Well, this is a question ready-made for, for Gary. If you were six days out from qualifying, basically, and having to commit fully to your to your approach and you weren't able to do a race simulation and long stints, you had a brake problem, a brake cooling problem you felt you could probably fix, but you had a quick go at fixing over the past few days and didn't. How worried do you think they will actually be? Because even if they solve the primary problem, there's a whole load of other unknowns for them to be taking on. Yeah, that's the difficult part really is no one, you know, just getting your long runs, um, seeing how you, t- you, know, you need to treat the tyres, what the degradation of the tyres is like and, you know, all that sort of stuff is difficult. But uh, in reality, you know, next weekend is going to be a different weekend. So it is going to be a Grand Prix weekend. You are going to have all the normal practice sessions that you need and so on and so forth. So you've got to look at it positively to say that the base of the car the base design of the car is pretty good so if you can get rid of the problems uh, and that for me is the biggest problem i i don't really understand uh obviously i don't understand their problem i don't know what it was but it seemed like it was a front brake overheating problem of some sort um and you know if you've got three days in bahrain it's not that far away from from walking it's not you know you've got a lot of people there uh you can you can do most things at the circuit if you have to. So the way they talked about it being, you know, quite a difficult thing to fix and quite a difficult thing to fix even for next weekend is pretty, it's a bit negative for me because I, I don't understand that philosophy. You know, everything can be fixed in some way or another. It doesn't really matter what it is. Um, so I don't know whether they didn't, I don't know why they didn't have a good attempt at fixing it at the circuit or by bringing bits from the UK. Uh, this weekend because that's the most important thing for me would be to prove by Saturday night in Bahrain that you've got a very good handle on it Uh, and if you haven't got a good handle on it then you're going to the next weekend Grand Prix weekend with a question mark beside the the things that you're doing you're still going to work on them away from being able to test it or run it or understand it or whatever so that would be my biggest worry I know underneath the the car they've got uh, is, is pretty solid so if they can get over those problems then the, the base they have was pretty decent. But I would worry about the fact that they didn't overcome the problems. Yeah, that's the big concern. They did bring in some bits, but they, they didn't have the desired effect. So the race is on really now to get it sorted in time for, for next weekend's season opening, Bahrain Grand Prix.
Well, let's move on to the rest now, Scott. Should we talk about Aston Martin? Somebody complained, uh, one of our commenters whose name escapes me. Um, apologies for that. So we didn't complain we didn't talk about Aston Martin yesterday, which is fair because we didn't. We didn't necessarily have time to cover everyone every day, but we will on this podcast. Aston Martin sort of, not stellar, but all round look pretty solid, don't they? Yeah, I feel like they're in a much better place for at the end of this preseason than they were 12 months ago for, for starters. Um, again, I can reflect a little bit on what I saw trackside and the the AMR22 looked looked quite good. I mean, it, it, it didn't, it, it wasn't the most sort of consistent and solid. I think it was a bit behind the McLaren from what where I could see. And like I said before, they were doing relatively similar programs. So, so it's quite a nice little like for like. Um, and it's obviously from the outside, it's, it's it's not really possible to tell whether you're looking at you know driver error or a driver struggling with a difficult car. Vettel was a little bit um, inconsistent in uh, through turn ten, um, just sometimes a little bit shallower on entry, sometimes missing missing the apex slightly, but. It didn't look problematic, and when it was tidy, it, like it looked good. It, it was hard to see much of a difference. It was it was a clear step on, for example, from the likes of the Williams, and it looked about where the Alpine, uh, where where the Alpine was. Um, and I think uh, I think Alonso had to use a C4 tire to, to to jump up in in that midfield group. I spoke to Sebastian Vettel uh, briefly shortly after that, and his uh, position is broadly similar. To to, to, to marks uh seb didn't use the phrase amorphous blob but it was sort of that kind of uh that kind of vibe where he feels that there is a really big group of cars that are close together hard to judge where they are car wise he's not unhappy with the, the the car's balance um certainly feels that there's things that can can be improved but yeah i feel like it's um i feel like it's been a relatively positive start for them yeah, the car looks okay on track. I watched it at turn 11 as well. And there was a little bit of vagueness on turning, but nothing too problematic. But Gary, what did you make of Aston? Um, well, I think I might disagree with Scott. I'm not quite sure. Um, you know, taking in the whole picture of, of what they are as a team, um, how their leadership works is the best way of putting it. Um, I just feel that they would be out to show their true hand as much as most other teams would be. I'm not saying they run the car and sniff of an oily rag, but they won't run it heavier than other people. I don't see any reason for it. And I know Lance Stroll would, or Lawrence Stroll would like to see, you know, reasonable lap times because that's what he's built on, especially from Lance. And I, I didn't see that happening at all over the weekend. I, I see them, you know, unfortunately I see them at the back of the midfield bunch because I, I, I you know, they haven't proved to me that they can they can do better. Looking at the car on the track, it 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 it, it looked heavy. It wasn't a car that was quick to react or would would uh, you know be nimble. I suppose you might call it. So it could be heavy or it could be lacking grip. Just, um, but I, as I say, I don't see why they'd run the car very heavy on fuel. There's no logical reason for that. You know, these the normal tests you do is you know these cars hold just over 100 kilograms of fuel. So you would tend to want to do most of your running on 75 kilograms of fuel. Um, you do some running on 50, and whenever you want to run at low fuel, you'd run on 25. 
uh, if you want to go for a, a race distance, then obviously you put it up to 100 and start from there. But those are the sort of stages that you would that you would go through to try and understand the car. Significant enough change on fuel load to get to see the characteristics of the car with lesser fuel, but not not to go to nothing. I mean, there's, there's obviously cars out there that ran very low fuel at the end of the day to get the times out of them. But the normal trend would be those 25 kilogram stages just to be able to have a significant enough fuel load change, which is... Um, you know, that's knocking on the door of a second for 25 kilograms. So you can change the fuel load, see if you get your second out of it by going out on the same set of tires or such, see if the car goes a second faster or whatever. So you, you know, you have certain things to try and do. And I, I never saw the Aston Martin sort of being a car that you would look at and say, you know, they're, this is, they're going for a lap time here. This is, this is a new set of tires. They're going to, try and wring its neck here, even on a heavier fuel load. It never looked like that to me. It was always a lazy approach and a lazy car, and I suppose you might call it lazily driven. It wasn't an attacking drive. So wait and see what happens next weekend again, because we have no idea. But I don't see them at the top of that midfield bunch. I'm not quite sure I see them in the middle of it even. It's going to be a tight bunch, certainly. Who would you pick out of, of those midfield teams that we haven't talked about uh, to be at the front? If we... If we set aside McLaren in the top three, we, we've talked about. Well, you know the one the one team that, st- that stood out to me a bit was Alfa Romeo. You know they've had trouble tests at, at Barcelona, um, but they you know today they had a an early an early finish, I suppose you might call it. So they never really got to show their true their true performance. But when uh, Bottas did his his thirty two nine, you know on the C three tires, that was a that was a competitive time. He you know he, he did a good job there. Um, and I know the team were disappointed um, in the fact that they never got to show the true performance of the car. Whether that be with lower fuel or not lower fuel, it doesn't really matter. It says the car looked quite good. We know Bottas is quick. We know he's very good qualifying. Um, so the reality of it is that I don't think they've shown their true hand. And even then, it was still it was still quite a good performance. So I think they're the one to me that's maybe made the most progress uh, and, and planted themselves in the middle of that midfield bunch as opposed to being more or less at the back of it last year. Um, I don't think they're going to lead the midfield bunch by any means, but I think they're in the middle of that midfield bunch. Yeah, I had a chat to Jan Monchot, the technical director, and he was relatively content with the progress they've made, particularly considering how badly the first test went for them with all sorts of problems. They've got the porpoising under control. They've got the car running in a state where it works well. There's still evolutions to come to try and get it running at the right height. They ideally want it to, but it's sustainable and it can run and it it's doing okay. I think they're just feeling that it's so tight in that midfield pack. A few tenths could make the difference between being in Q3 or out in Q1. So, yeah, a positive start, I think, overall for Alfa Romeo. They certainly feel that they've got the baseline they need, even if they're not necessarily one of the strongest midfield cars to start with. They feel they've got something to work from. Scott, you did mention Alpine earlier. Alonso set that strong time on C4s. I must admit, I, I watched uh, at Turn 11 earlier. The Alpine was was definitely heavy at this stage, but I've never seen Alonso have so many sort of big, wide proper driving moment errors, if you see what I mean. And there seemed to be a point always on turning or under braking where there was an instability and you could move the instability around a tiny bit 
but it was always there and constantly ended up going massively deep in the corner, under-rotated, compromising the exit. But it does sound like the Alpine looked a lot more convincing when you saw it later on. Yeah, but there was also a point during the afternoon where it improved massively on the C3 tyre as well, apparently. The, I don't know what it is that they did. They were, they were running high, uh, a higher fuel load, um, so part of it was taking some of the fuel out, but there were, I think part of it also was just as the track conditions changed, and I think also they tried to work on a few things like I said they they were experimenting on a few things just sort of working out where that balance is between avoiding the porpoising and making sure that they've got the ride height that they want on the car and apparently Alonso came over the radio and said that the car feels fast this was our this I guess this would have been about mid-afternoon um when they'd been out so this might have been slightly after you'd um been able to get been able to get trackside so maybe that was like the middle ground between what you saw and what I saw um because when I saw the car on track, I didn't get that was one of the teams that did a, a bit less running when I was trackside. But it 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 looked okay. Like it was a, like I say, it was similar to similar to what I could see from the Aston Martin, but just a little bit less erratic, um, perhaps. And then it put the C fours on and it had a really positive front end through into in, into turn ten. Um, it to, to the point where at one stage Alonso had to bail out of the corner quite quickly because he turned in and it looked like he was going to clean the bollard out on, on the inside of the kerb. Um, so I'm not going to say that that means that the Alpine's got absolute bags of, of front of front grip. I think uh, maybe Alonso had just slightly misjudged it on his first proper attempt pushing on the on the C4. Uh, but I think it was, I think it was a. It was a good last couple of days for for Alpine. Um, they're they're certainly really happy with how their how their test ended. Um, they were they were happier than the 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 times and everything made it look in in Barcelona. But the it was still very much a, okay. Well, yeah, but go and do something proper, and then maybe we'll believe you. Then they started. They had a bit of a difficult day one here, and then it sort of picked up again since then. I still I I still just find myself never being. A, a hundred percent convinced by this team. Uh, there's always like a bit of a nagging doubt in my mind about where where they're really at. Um, so I'm curious to see where it ends up if it, and if it's obviously good enough for Alonso because that's a separate story entirely. But I think um, again, I think it, I think it did end up in a relatively decent situation for them. It's just I, I can't ignore the fact that they needed to put that C4 tyre on to make the big jump that they did at the end. Gary, you have concerns about Alpine still, don't you? Yeah, I, I do. I mean, it, it just, a lot of porpoising um, and it, it's just the frequency of it. Yeah, that's what, what's happened with them is definitely a porpoising. Um, it's obviously Bahrain's quite bumpy, so it can get initiated by the bumps, but a lot of other teams that would get initiated by the bumps and it would sort of settle down on the Alpine, it didn't. Um I'm not so sure that it's 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 right there. I, you know, again, they keep saying how good it is, but at the end of the day, you know, you, you just you just want to show it and you just want to get on with it. it. It's no good keeping it all for next weekend. You know, you can look at look at Red Bull as an example. You know, they 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 may have the quickest car in the pit lane, but still, you know, they know about that, but they still went out and proved it to themselves, and they showed it to everybody else. So. 
that's one of the sort of things that I think as a as a lesser team you have to do sometime. And I think Ren, uh, um, Renault Alpine are, are are in that position. You know, I've I've heard Fernando Alonso saying they had the best car in the in the, in the pit lane and never drove for McLaren. And I heard him saying that the Honda was a was a GP two engine. Well, look what's happened now. You know, it's at the end of the day. You know, we all know the McLaren wasn't the best car in the pit at that point in time. We all know the engine was struggling, but that's that's the engine now that won last year's World Championship, and that uh, that you know, as far as testing is concerned, this year has has done a very good job. So, yeah, I'll wait and see it. I'll wait and see the stopwatch come um, Saturday afternoon in in Bahrain next weekend. Well, when it comes to qualifying, the stopwatch doesn't lie, does it? Scott's Alpha Tari. First test was pretty good for them. Second test, solid, but perhaps one grade down, should we say, in terms of how impressive they were. Yeah, um, I think they're, they're happy enough with the mileage that they've they've done and what they've worked through, what they understand about the car. But, um, yeah, I didn't really feel like they, they really kicked on this week. They started, obviously, well enough. I think Pierre Gasly topped the times on, on the first day um, this week, or yeah, he did, didn't he? It was the second day. It was it was the second day that uh, Kevin Magnussen stole top spot after the tested or the main test had finished. Um, but then, yeah, didn't really, I, yeah, just didn't really like kick on from then. And I, I don't want to put too much emphasis to what on, on what I saw trackside because obviously I was only out for 60, 70 minutes. It was only one part of the track. You can be slow at what part of the track but maybe across the track as a uh, the lap as a whole you, you you've got a pace advantage over others but obviously judging what I saw with my own eyes I was genuinely surprised at how much understeer the AlphaTauri had when Sonoda was driving it now that could easily be the driver consistently overshooting it not or not quite getting it right but every time that car came through especially on the softs there was a lot of push on the front axle um, it it was just just that little bit where it was just going past where it, it wasn't biting right away, and it looked quite bad. It it didn't look pleasant to drive. So, like I said, maybe around the rest of the lap it was mega, and maybe it's actually the team's in a in a really really good place. It's just lots of positive noises at the start of the test. It still looks very. It doesn't look like there are any dramas there or anything like that. It's just, I'm, I'm curious to see next week if actually it all comes together when it matters, or if maybe they've just fallen away um, a little bit at, at least at this stage. It's it's really really hard to tell. I just, I couldn't help but feel when I actually got to see that car properly myself, and just I just thought. Oh, I was just expecting a bit more. And maybe that was because I'd sort of built up an idea in my head that they were, you know, just having a mega test or, or something like that. I just, I can't escape the fact that slightly underwhelming feeling that I had when I saw it. Yeah, the car looked decent at turn 11, which is a quicker corner, obviously, but not stunning. Understeer limited, slightly more understeer limited than some of the others. A lot of the cars are understeer limited. But... Yeah, it didn't look stunning, but it looked absolutely in, in the middle. But you like the you like the Alpha Tauri, don't you, Gary? You think it's a good tidy concept? Yeah, I think it's a good tidy concept, and it's you know it's it's left the door open for quite a lot of development. It's not sort of boxed itself in somewhere where it can get out of. It's got you know 
big side pod undercuts, but you can do a lot with the floor. You can do this um, block front end if you want to, and within that package, there's a lot of a lot of things that can be done. Um, I, uh, you know, the understeer thing is quite a tricky little one because with these tires with 18 inch rims and the smaller sidewall, the, the, the sort of slip angle of the tire is, a, is reduced a lot from last year. It's not so much compliance between the rim and the, and the tire tread. So at the end of the day, it's a bit more switch like You've got more grip because the tread is flatter, the tread is, is bigger. You've got more grip, but when it breaks away, um, and we see it with the wheel locking, you know, there's quite a lot of locking going on at the moment. You know, once you actually lock it, that's it. It's done. And, and it's the same with understeer. Once you've got the understeer, it's gone. You, you can put more lock on it, and it won't it won't change. You know, it won't it won't give you more grip. It'll just understeer more. So it looks like a lot of understeer, but actually, in reality, as you get a very small percentage of understeer, it's just above the slip angle of the tire. So you keep on piling steering lock because you want the car to get around the corner, um, but it doesn't. So it's the same with traction. You know, once you light the rear wheels up. The slip is huge. It's not just a little bit of slip. It's not just so you get a little bit of wheel spin. You get a lot of wheel spin. So all those things are exaggerated from a small percentage of of an actual problem, and that's where you need to sort of realise you need to make sure that you get on top of that small percentage of understeer. And there's teams trying to do that really with with, with different solutions, but at the end of the day, the you you can overcome the problem very by a very small change. And the, and what looks like a massive problem becomes a you know goes away very quickly, and I think I think Alfa Tori will get on top of it pretty quickly. And just to throw another team into the mix that's in this midfield morass, it's Haas. They're definitely back in the game. <laughs> Brilliant, Wild, very, very good, Ed. Very good. You delivered that so well, uh, almost by accident. But we can say they've now got a car that should allow them at least to fight for some points finishes, and have at worst midfield respectability. Yeah, the um, the Hass, uh, I think uh, I, I I think that's actually looking like a pretty tidy little car, and I suspect if that is the case, we're going to have a lot of uh, the revived topic of the Ferrari Hass relationship saga, and you know whether it's okay, is there anything else going on there, all the usual stuff. But I this was I was quite impressed by Hass because. Y- yeah, the, the the lap times are difficult to, to to read. I would imagine they are running lower fuel or higher engine modes than some of the others. Um, they've had different track conditions because they have been setting these eye-catching times in that little bit of running that they've had after everyone else has stopped, which I've said a million times now, but just in case anyone has missed it, that's because of the cargo plane problem they had that caused them to miss the first four hours on uh thursday so they've been they've been making it up but ultimately and um i hope i'm not uh stealing something that i'm sure i've heard gary say on previous podcasts like i don't think you just can't dress up a bad car or a slow car certainly not at this stage of testing um and ultimately whether it's been you know on the lap times what we've seen on television or even through our own eyes watching trackside the vf22 looked looks like it has a solid foundation it doesn't look like a car that's um it it's not exhibiting any like particularly nasty traits it looks like it looks quite compliant and it's just yeah just like quietly quite impressive you're relatively upbeat about Hass, i think as well aren't you gary 
Yeah, I am. I mean, they, you know, they obviously uh, said themselves they, they stopped development last year. They didn't even start development on last year's car, so they could focus on this year's car. They've got a whole new sort of structure around them of ex-Ferrari people, uh, you know, all that sort of stuff. I hope it doesn't get into the politics of, you know, you've um, you've got too much information from Ferrari or anything like that, because at the end of the day, no matter what you've got, you've still got to exploit it yourself. The car is different enough, I think, to say it's their own package. Um, they do use the maximum amount of componentry acceptable within the regulations. So uh, there's nothing wrong with anything they've done. And bringing back Kevin Magnussen is, a, is a, good, a good step for them because Kevin, you know, has always been quick. He has got the confidence of the team behind him. So he's, you know, he's a, he's a, a good recruit for them with the situation they've had. Um, it'll bring stability to them in the fact that they can believe in what Kevin's doing in the car. And I think we all know that Mick Schumacher's not slow by any means. You know, he won the, the F3 championship and the F2 championship. And he's in his second year now in, in F1. So he's got that learning curve of all the circuits, you know, put to bed. Um, and he's got somebody to chase. He's got somebody to chase that he knows will, you know, ring the car's neck. So the whole environment there at Haas, I think, is a is a pretty good one. They are a small team. Um, but they're not as small as they look because they have got that, that connection with Ferrari and they use all the Ferrari componentry. But it's, you know, it's still, you've got to do it on that race weekend, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, you've got to stand alone and, and, and achieve the goals. And I think the team are, they are a team of racers. I think they've had their year off, they've regrouped and and I, I do wish them all the best. It's uh, it's nice to see it. Yes, I know the. They had that extra time in testing. The circuit gets better, it gets cooler, all that sort of stuff. So maybe the lap times are a tenth or two or three tenths faster than they would have been if they'd been done earlier in the day. But you know, they're not. They are what they are. So, um, yeah, they'll go into the Bahrain weekend with a, with a bit of confidence and their shoulders the shoulders held high. So uh, wish them all the best. Yeah, and even with that extra running, they're still very much at the back in terms of the total mileage in, in pre-season testing. So that's a little bit of a, a weakness for them, the fact that they're they're behind. But it's not too bad. They've done 2,117 kilometres. Ferrari's top with 3,941. So they're about 500 kilometres behind Alfa Romeo Haas. But that, that's enough, I think, to mean they've got a reasonable grasp of the car. Scott Williams, it's all just been unravelling a bit for them, hasn't it? We didn't see their real pace today. They were the slowest overall they're not going to be a second plus off the back of everyone else, that's for sure. No, they're not. Um, like I said, uh, car looked like a little bit of a handful when Nicholas Latifi was driving late on. A lot of lockups. It was the first thing I saw when I got to turn ten, um, and I if he did it two or three times again on 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 the same run. There's one really big um, lockup, big amount of tire smoke um, as a result. It just looked. It just looked a lot harder to drive. It didn't look as well settled. It looked particularly tricky on the brakes. Um, and it just looked like um, Latifi was having to just check up a little bit more in the final phase of braking just to get the, the front of the car in. And like I said, he was on track at the same time doing a similar sort of run as the Aston and the McLaren were. And there was none of that in either of those cars. Um, so it does feel like Williams is definitely behind, say, Aston Martin. Um, 
and they're on the back foot now because, like I said earlier, they've lost a day of testing. Uh, they had this fire, which we still don't have an exact reason for. Um, maybe Gary might be able to offer some um, team translation, but uh, Jost Capito said that um, the reason was the the cause of it was basically, in his words, too stupid to talk about, and he said it was procedural. Um, and basically was just laughing because I was asking him, does that mean you're going to avoid a repeat? And he was laughing and saying, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, so what, what, no reason it would uh, like happen again. He was like, no, absolutely not. So my best interpretation of that is that in the process of, I don't know, handling the car or prepping the car for a run in the garage or turning the car around, either something's been left on something that shouldn't have been or something wasn't checked the way it was meant to be. And I just assumed that the car went out with brake temps that were already high or temps at the back of the car that were already high. And then it didn't take long for the, for the, for the brakes to ignite. But it was, uh, it was an amusing bit of um, sort of cryptic explaining from, uh, from Capito. I don't know how, what, what do you make of that, Gary? If you heard that, heard that description, what would you, what would you try and deduce was the, was the cause? Uh, you know, really, Scott, I've got no idea. Obviously, there's a, a huge amount of stuff you could do that would be wrong. Um, it was both rear brakes seemed to catch fire at the same time. So it wasn't just like one one side had got a, an oily rag stuck up the brake duct. Um, so it was both sides. So you'd have to assume there was something maybe going on in the, um, the recharging system, the electrical rear brake system that charges up the battery. And they were using the, the smaller than required rear brakes to do the stopping on the car because you have to have brakes on the car but you do most of the the stopping using the 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 ERS the recharge system for the battery so i would imagine it was something like that now whether it was an electronic setup problem or whether it was a you know something not done right mechanically i, I have no idea but you know going a bit further than that yes okay they lost time um and you have to accept that sometimes it, it does happen but if you're saving everything up for that last few laps that that time loss constitutes, then you've left it a little bit late. I don't think it'll be as far off the pace as they are at the moment either. But, you know, when I say about the about the Alfa Tori not sort of boxing themselves in with the design of the car uh, and they've got room to to develop and move, uh, if there's an opposite, that's that's the Williams. You know, they have boxed themselves in much, much more even than, than Mercedes have now. So... You know they're they're committed to what they've got, and what they've got, from my rough knowledge of how aerodynamics work, I don't see how it works because you know you're doing everything that you don't want with that airflow. Um, but you know they they've committed to it and they've gone that way, and obviously they got the wind tunnel and CFD, so they're they're able to prove it. I'm not, but to get airflow to change direction as quickly as they're asking it to, especially across the top of the side pods. Um, I don't know how airflow will stay attached to that surface, do what they want to do. It's, uh, yeah, there's something missing in my book on that one, but it's it's a compact little package, and uh, we'll see. Again, you know, if all these things are reasons, all these problems we've had are reasons for not being able to produce a good lap time, then we're only days away from actually seeing the real car have its true performance. So. I'll wait these, uh, these words and see what happens. Yeah, well, we'll find out soon enough. This time, 
next week we will have a proper qualifying result. But going through all those midfield teams, we haven't really plumped for whoever's at the front of it. And I just can't judge who it is because the the error bars in testing are always quite big, but they're bigger than ever this year. Everything looks quite condensed. It's it's genuinely difficult. You can make a case for for all sorts of them. So I think that does overall, though, bode really well for the season. I suspect we're going to see a good compact spread front to back, which is really encouraging. And we'll probably see small differences in qualifying are going to make the difference between Q3 and Q1, hopefully. So, yeah, Scott, in conclusion, an interesting pre-season testing, but probably the one that leaves the most questions unanswered of any I can remember, actually. Yeah, it it, it, it seems to get tougher and tougher, but obviously a massive regulatory shake-up is always going to just just create so many more variables. It, we, the scope is wider than ever for teams to have got it right and, and, and got it wrong. We've got a lot of different visual variety among the cars. We've had teams doing all sorts of different programs and doing their programs on, on at different times of the day. Um, and we had a first test that was particularly unrevealing because there was so much like correlation work and stuff going on in, in, in Barcelona. So it's... Um, it, it does feel like I feel like we've got like the we've started to put the the edges of the 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 puzzle to, to, together. We're sort of we're sort of building the picture, but there's there's quite a lot more that needs to fall into place before we can actually see what see what it really shows us. I sort of have a broad idea of that sort of top three, top four, and then after that, absolutely anybody's guess. Yeah, would you agree with that, Gary? That it's it's just really hard to be sure even by testing standards and and anyway we'll get a competitive order next week and then it's going to change very rapidly race by race anyway yeah development the development the pace is going to be quite high at this first few races because i think it's one of those sort of things where there's there's a lot of development to be done but actually it's not so sophisticated as it was last year probably you know those barge board packages and stuff we had last year were just enormously sophisticated whereas this year i think it's a bit more blatant um, so I think we'll see changes quicker than we would have done last year, but not necessarily better. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. You know, the, I, the one thing I am waiting to see really next weekend is how Mercedes turn it around because we saw them last year turn it around. Um, and, you know, they, they had reason to believe last year that the regulations worked against them. They've had these regulations for a long time, so there's no reason for them to sort of get snipey about it. Their car that they've built is is probably as controversial, I suppose, as any, uh, as far as how they interpret the regulations is concerned. I'm not saying anything wrong with it, but it's probably as con- controversial as any. So um, it's really interesting to see now how they regroup after this test and how they turn it around. But as far as the midfield bunch is concerned, yeah, it's going to be a you know one weekend to another weekend could be a completely different uh, um, order of of merit. So I think, you know, each race will have its own sort of requirements. Each track will have its own sort of requirements. And some tracks, some cars will suit it and other tracks, they won't. Yeah, I think you summed it up very well there. Pre-season testing has been absolutely fascinating. We've got Red Bull, probably his favourite. Ferrari, the storyline there is, can they challenge for victory? Mercedes, the storyline is, can they turn it around? McLaren, the storyline is, can they fix their problems? As for the rest of it, who's at the front of the midfield? No idea, but that's what we really, really want to see. We've got a few contenders 
but it's all going to shake out in Bahrain in a week's time. Thanks very much, Gary Anderson and Scott Mitchell, for your insight. Do head to therace.com and don't forget the hyphen. Huge amounts to read there, including Gary's pace analysis and, of course, Mark Hughes' analysis of the long runs. Do check out our sister podcasts, including Bring Back V10s and also our YouTube channel. Just because testing's over doesn't mean we're going to go silent on the Race F1 podcast. The season is almost upon us. So stay with us with everything you need to know about the world of Formula One. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic.